You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Book of Acts prods us to be on God's page instead of like our own page, which we're so prone to do, right? I mean, I'm not going to make you raise hands, but who's prone to get on their own page instead of God's? Right? But, but Acts prods us to see God's mission. And how do we get onto God's mission instead of our own mission? For non-Christians, the book of Acts is about how the world is turned upside down through the transformation of the human heart because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am certain we will see the latter clearly displayed this morning from our passage. This week, I read about one man's journey of rebellion against God. His name is Francis Thompson. You might not know him. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, this brilliant English writer, philosopher, and theologian, um, said this about Thompson when he died in 1907. He said, the world lost the greatest poet since Robert Browning. If you're like an English major and you love poetry, you know those names. Francis Thompson meandered in life. Prior to his death, he studied the priesthood, but failed. Following his father's footsteps, he tried to pursue a medical degree, but it didn't work out. He joined the military, and a day later, they kicked him out. Eventually, Thompson found himself on the streets of London, addicted to opium. However, it was through an associate where Thompson was allowed to pursue his gift of poetry. And one of the most famous, one of his most famous poems is called The Hound of Heaven. Here's the beginning of the poem, and then I'm going to share with you the end of the poem. Just keep in mind it's actually 182 verses long, but I'm not reading all of it, obviously. Here's the beginning. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the archers of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vestayed hopes I sped and shot precipitated down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. Here's the end of his poem. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me, save only me. All which I took from thee I did but take. Not for thy harms, but just that thou mightest seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake. Francis is lost. I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp on my hand. And come. If you love poetry, you will love the uh, that particular poem. If you don't, it's okay. It's okay. It's, I'm going to tell you about this poem. It's beautiful. It's honest. It describes a man who had been running from God. But no matter how Hard and how fast he ran, he could not outrun the Lord. 
This poem is about a man who ultimately realized he could not outrun God and then found comfort, hope, and acceptance from God. Many of you in this room, including myself, identify with Francis Thompson. You seemingly did all that you could do to not be a Christian, but then God. Here's how C.S. Lewis, author of books um, such as Mere Christianity, The Chronicles of Narnia, Screwtape Letters, and many others, is how he describes his conversion. I did not see then what I now, the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore the Lord which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words, compelle interate, which is Latin, compel them to come in, had been so abused by wicked men that we should shudder at them, but properly understood, they plumbed the depths of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softest of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. The compulsion of the Lord is liberation for the soul. Lewis says he was brought to God kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes every direction, just looking for escape. But then God. I know I've made mention in previous sermons that I was saved in my early 20s. What I have not explained is that I was running from God. After high school, I spent several years just getting drunk, drugs, having sex. While I felt the Lord constantly pricking at me time and again, I resisted. I didn't want to give up control. I wanted to enjoy life on my terms. But then, God. These days, much is being made of Kanye West. Now, I don't know Kanye West, and I sure don't know enough about him to know the state of his soul. And I'm not a huge fan of his music style, that genre. But can God save a man who once rapped about drinking drugs and ungodly sex? Absolutely. And I hope he has experienced the glorious grace of the gospel, and his life is now marked with the same grace and obedience to his Savior. But who would ever thought that a person like Kanye West could become a Christian? If anyone in our generation was antagonistic to the gospel in actions and words, it was Kanye West. But then, God. If there was ever a person who was antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first century, it was Saul of Tarsus. Whatever my issues, it does not compare to Saul. Saul's thoughts about Christianity prior to conversion was not indifference, right? 
Saul wasn't about letting each person believe whatever they wanted to believe, kind of the mantra, live and let live. Saul didn't view Christianity as a mere annoyance, kind of like a lingering cold. No, Saul hated Christians. He hated Christ. His hatred has already been identified and indicated in the book of Acts. We saw this when Stephen was stoned. We saw this at the end of Acts 7. Stephen was murdered and Saul was present. Before Stephen was stoned by multiple people, it says at the end of Acts 7, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So these garments were laid down at Saul's feet. Why? As I explained before, these guys wanted better range of motion to throw stones at Stephen so that they could murder him. And Saul just kind of, he just watched it all, cheered him on, have at it. A few, few verses later, as we turn the page to Acts 8, it says, Saul approved of his execution. In this situation, Saul was the chief cheerleader, like I said. The murder of Stephen did not satisfy, but only emboldened Saul. The beginning of Acts 9 is perhaps the most direct description of Saul's mentality and mission. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, so he's going to the people who kind of oversee him, and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. So that if he find any belonging to the way, meaning Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is like an uncontrollable lion who has only one purpose, and that is to devour his prey. He is an uncontrollable wild beast. His breathing and actions are uncontrollable, and his singular goal is to persecute Christians. It seems in verse 2 that Saul volunteers himself to basically travel 150 miles, which would be like a week's journey, to round up these Christians in Damascus and then take them back to Jerusalem to imprison them and then to persecute them. In modern terms, the letter Saul received from the high priest, verse 2, would be like an extradition order. You go get him, Saul. Go get him. You bring them back. Let's put an end to this movement. No matter how you talk about Saul up to this point in his life, it must include the word evil. Evil. He was evil, just like Hitler was evil. Surely, if there is a person throughout history that was, quote, unsavable, it is Saul of Tarsus. But then, God. So what do I mean when I say, but God? Francis Thompson, C.S. Lewis, Sean Powers, seems Kanye West have all been transformed by the grace of the gospel through repentance from sin and faith that Jesus is the sinless Savior and Son of God come hope and healing. All the aforementioned people had tried to find hope and healing in other places, in other religions, in substance abuse, in themselves, and all failed. But then... 
So what does Acts 9 and Saul's conversion tell us about God? No one, and I mean no one, is outside the reach of God's sovereign and saving hand. No one. I think the church needs to be reminded of this truth. It's so tempting to become self-focused on our journey with God. We can forget that we can forget the grandeur and power of God to save sinners, even the most unlikely of sinners. What about your obstinate friend that you have been ministering to for years? God can save him. What about a family member that you will eat Thanksgiving dinner with, right? God can save him. What about the serial murderer, right? In prison, locked up. God can save him. God can reach into anyone's soul and breathe life and use that person for God's good purposes. Pastor Kent Hughes has said, the story of Saul's spiritual transformation ought to remind us never to write, never to write anyone off as being beyond the love of Christ. We may do so with relatives whom we know have heard the word for years without response or a sinner who has gone to a crass level of depravity or someone who has gone into a cult or is propagating false doctrine. But Scripture is clear. God can reach anyone. Here is the truth. The Lord saves the wretched for his purposes, and for his glory. We oftentimes think of Christianity about what's in it for me. What do I get out of this deal? No. You were saved for God's good purposes and for his glory. That's why you, Christian, have been saved. Further, a person cannot truly understand the power and grace of the gospel to save unless he has been saved by the gospel. And what do we see with Saul? The Lord broke in on Saul's soul like lightning that strikes the ground. That's literally what that word shown means in the Greek. It's like lightning's hitting the ground. Boom. Here's part of verses 3 and 4. Suddenly a light from heaven shone, broke in, broke down around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice. So there was a flash of light, like lightning, and a voice calling Saul. Although Saul could not see with his physical eyes, he saw Jesus with the eyes of his heart. He saw Christ for the first time. I'm going to be real personal here for a moment. I'm going to be personal because I don't want you to write off the events of Paul's conversion. What happened to Paul still happens today. At the age of 22, the Lord brought me to my knees. Um, and in tears, I cried out to God. For the rest of that evening, this day, when I was 22 years old, I cried tears of repentance and joy. Me, a grown man, cried myself to sleep because God broke in. After the evening and into the morning, 
laying on a tear-soaked pillow with sun rays, I remember it so vividly, sun rays were, were coming in through the window and beaming down on the place, on the bed I was sleeping on. I was still in my work clothes from the day prior. And what happened, I, I'm just going to tell you what happened. I'm reluctant to say it because it just seems like this is not, not supposed to happen. But this shadowy figure walks in, grabs my hand and says, Sean, I am with you, then walks out. I was so convinced by the event, I began to make phone calls to my friends to see who entered my room that morning. I don't know if it was the Lord or an angel. I, I don't know. But God. Aside from Saul's conversion and my conversion, God continues to work miracles in ways we cannot imagine. I can tell you story after story about how God is at work to save sinners to a Savior in Muslim countries. There are dreams taking place where the Lord is coming to people and people are getting saved. This seems so distant from our enlightened American culture, but I promise you, God is at work. He's at work through means we would not consider, quote, normal. So I need to pause for a moment, at least from what I've said thus far, to provide a, a clarifying thought or two about what I said. First, I think it's important to remember that even though your story of being saved might be different from Saul's story, it is the same blood of Christ that has atoned for both of your sins. Even though Saul's actions were egregious, your need for a Savior and his need for a Savior are the same. The evil that he demonstrated with his actions ran deep in your heart. In both situations, conversion was meant to convey your emptiness and God's greatness. Here's my second comment about what I've said thus far. May the salvation of Saul cause us to pray. If it is true, there's not a person on this planet that is unable to be saved, let's pray like it. Let's believe it. Let's pray knowing that God's sovereign hand can reach anyone. May our prayers be focused on the advancement of the gospel through the transformation of the human heart. As I've already mentioned, some of you will find yourself at the dinner table during Thanksgiving with family and friends who do not know the Lord. Pray for them. Share the gospel with them. Be real with them. Talk about all that God has done in your life, Christian, and the good news that you have. You get to share with others. What an opportunity in the holidays. Plead with God for them by praying for them. Now Saul's conversion is unique. There's no doubt about it, right? But his conversion does not make another person's conversion any less significant. Actually, after we get past the circumstances surrounding Paul's conversion, there are several key elements in this passage that all Christians, everyone in this room, can identify with. Every Christian in this room, you can identify with this. After Saul falls to the ground, we read of this exchange between him and the Lord. Saul, Saul, the Lord says, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, let's be very clear here. 
Prior to this experience, Saul had never known Christ. There's some thought that Saul could have witnessed Jesus preaching during Jesus' earthly ministry, but we know of no personal connection between the two. So how is it that Saul persecuted, uh, persecuted but knew, never knew him, right? Like, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Well, I don't know you. What's going on here? So look closer at the details of the exchange. Remember, Jesus had ascended into heaven, yet Jesus tells Saul every Christian he had persecuted meant that he was actually persecuting Jesus. Hope you follow the logic there. There's something deeply theological about what Jesus is saying and what Saul is beginning to learn. When a person is saved by the grace of God, they are united to Christ. In the Gospel of John, um, chapter 15, the word abiding is used over and over again. It's used to describe a Christian's relationship with Christ. Here's how it's used. Just go right to the text. Just one verse. I am the vine, Jesus says. And you, Christian, are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, Jesus is the vine, the Christian is a branch, and being born again means you're grafted into the life of the branch. What was once two is now one. Do you think about your relationship with Christ like that? Theologians um, call this union with Christ. This week I actually read a book entitled, or titled, Union with Christ. Here's what I read, just a couple phrases from that book. Union with Christ means the reality of knowing God and living in communion with Him doesn't begin when you die. We often think that, and we sometimes say this, when I die, I get to go be with Jesus. Well, physically, yeah. But there's actually something more significant going on right here, right now, where you sit. Eternal life begins in this life when Christ joins His life to yours. A little bit later in the, in the book, these authors say this, union with Christ is not an abstract idea. It is in this lofty idea that kind of hangs in the air for us to ponder and think about. No. It is a powerful reality. And if Jesus has joined his life to yours, then you have been given everything you need for life and godliness. Here's what these really smart people are trying to say. At conversion, you became a new person. A new person. You received new DNA. Brand new, gospel-centered, Christ-centered, infused DNA. You received the DNA of Christ In John 4, Jesus tells Nicodemus that at conversion is the language he used, a person is born again. New birth is because of Christ and results in taking on the righteousness of Christ. So here are some implications of what the Lord was saying to Saul in verses 4 and 5. Implications for you. Because of a Christian's union with Christ, when you suffer, we all suffer. If you have it, just live a little longer. When you suffer, Christ suffers with you. When you struggle with sin, 
Christ is driving you toward holiness. When you are persecuted, Christ is persecuted. Just think about what this means for your everyday life. If you are in Christ, then there is nothing in this life for you to fear, including persecution. We all can sit back and list out fears that we have. But if you are in Christ, there there is no fear. No fear of what this world is going to do to you. You have every reason to hope. Why? Because God has taken a hold of you. He has written your story. He has saved your soul and has given you eternal life. So why do, you, why do we always try to put salvation and circumstances back on ourselves, right? Why? If you are united to Christ, then you should be the most optimistic person in the world regardless of your circumstances. What Christ says in verses 4 and 5 eventually becomes part of Saul's later theology. Saul, you know him better as Paul. Kind of codifies this in his letters, which are now Holy Scripture. Here's here's just one passage of many of a Christian's union with Christ. So Jesus says this to Saul. Later, we, the same guy writes this. From Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. We, 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 we went through this and we went through Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are united to Christ. Let's grasp the profound implications that it has for our lives. We see a second element of the Christian life from Saul's conversion story. So the first one being we are united to Christ. We see a second one. We see it from Saul and then from Ananias, who we read about in the second half of this passage. Both in their own way were obedient to Christ. After Saul was brought to his knees and the Lord appeared to him, he was told what to do. Jesus says, but rise and enter the city, Damascus, and you will be told what to do. You need to go there. I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen, but just go, right? Now, perhaps you think Paul or Saul didn't have a choice after what happened. His eyes were open, but he was blind. What recourse did he have? Well, if his hatred was genuine, he could have went back to Jerusalem and be like, I'm out. <laughs> what is this madness? I'm going. <laughs> but I think because he was born again, Saul knew he was speaking with Jesus, the Son of God. Here we see Saul's life beginning to mark, be marked by obedience. Right? Go into the city. Do what? I'm not going to tell you. You just need to go. Okay. <laughs> Indeed, a mark of Christian faith is obedience to Christ. And we saw this with Philip in previous weeks. Perhaps the more obvious example is from Ananias. Ananias obeyed Christ, but... Not without a little bit of like shock and concern. Did you catch kind of like what Ananias, how he dialogued with the Lord there? 
Jesus wanted Ananias to minister to Saul. And when the Lord tells him to go and minister, that's verse 14, Ananias paused. He's like, why? Why did he pause? What's going on? Because Saul's reputation as a persecutor of Christians had made its way from Jerusalem to Damascus. The reputation was out. Here's why Ananias was like, "Uh, God, can we talk about this for a moment? Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind us and basically take us back to Jerusalem. So yeah, if I were Ananias, I would pause for a moment. Here's like a modern twist on this ancient scene. Let's say after 9-11, the Lord Jesus told you to fly to the mountains of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and go minister to Osama bin Laden. How many of you are going to pause? Be like, I, got, I got a question. I, got, I actually got a lot of questions. Can we talk about this for a moment? I'm sure if you're like me, you're... Initial reaction is going to be, excuse me? What would you say? At times, obedience to Christ will, will require you to do hard things. And the question is, as it was for Ananias, are you up for it? Are you up for it? After the initial objection, Ananias does obey the Lord. He goes to straight street and meets Paul and lays hands on him. Saul receives the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and as we saw last week, he was immediately baptized. Again, another post-conversion baptism. There was two elements that we can see from this passage. Union with Christ, and the second one is our obedience to Christ. And there's a final element of the Christian faith that transcends the story of Saul's conversion that we can take and look at for our lives. Look at what the Lord says to Ananias about Saul. This won't be up on the screen. I forgot to put it up there. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument. So Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Notice the Lord's explanation for saving Saul. He is chosen. He is going to be God's instrument to see the gospel advance. He will suffer. In the sovereignty of God, there is a plan for Saul's life. The the word chosen is the Greek word for elect. Oftentimes, elect is used to refer to uh, God's people who have been predestined to be saved. Here, it concerns what Paul will do for God. Namely, Saul is God's elect instrument. Saul is simply a tool used in the hand of God. He ends up being a significant tool or instrument in the hand of God. He ends up being a significant instrument who goes on various ministry journeys and, as many of you know, writes a lot of the New Testament. Nonetheless, he is simply a tool. And Saul did suffer as the Lord said. Jesus didn't cause the suffering of Saul to spite him, especially in light of his persecution, right? No, Saul's suffering revealed the depth of the gospel, which only enabled him to be a more effective preacher 
an evangelist of the gospel. Later, Saul would pen this to the Romans while in prison. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. We don't think about suffering like that. Let's be honest. We have a hard time connecting our suffering with rejoicing. Here Paul says, we rejoice in our suffering. They belong together. The sovereign hand of God that allows us to suffer is never in vain. It wasn't for Paul. Your suffering, Christian, is always connected to a divine and benevolent God, to his divine and benevolent and good purposes, even if you don't, do not understand why. Saul, Saul's suffering was not in vain. He had said in his letters, all that I've gone through is for God, for his glory, and for his purposes. Saul was convinced that his suffering was an opportunity to rejoice. In, in my own words, he says, I rejoice in my suffering because of all that God is doing in me. It's amazing when you step back and see what's being said here. You're going to suffer. I'm going to make sure of that. But it's for my good purposes. And Saul, because he's being used by God, he's a tool, he's an instrument, he rejoices. So how do I summarize Saul's conversion? We can summarize it by first looking at God. What is beyond doubt from Acts 9, verses 1 to 19, is God is always taking the initiative, Right? God took the initiative in Saul's conversion. Like, he wasn't looking for it. He's running away from it. As a matter of fact, he was persecuting. He wasn't looking to be saved, but God took the initiative. He had written the path for Ananias and, Ananias and Saul. Excuse me. God was always at work, even in the midst of persecution. We can believe this in our generation as well. God is still taking the initiative. Even if the world around us seems like it's failing, God is still taking the initiative. Even though Christianity seems to be on decline in America, God is still at work. His kingdom will advance. I think it's important for Christians to embrace this positive view of God's kingdom advancement. Too often we can succumb to the doom and gloom. What we we see what's wrong without ever seeing what's right. We can be prone to talk about what is, what is working against us instead of pointing out who is for us, namely God. God is for us. And he proves that to us every single day. Every day. He proves that he is for us. He is faithful to us. I mean, we'll call what we have seen throughout the book of Acts, right? Massive suffering and persecution. But in all of it, God was at work. 
Saul is proof that God was at work. I said earlier, Saul was like a lion who had only one purpose, and that was to devour his prey. Well, little did Saul know that there was a divine hunter pursuing him. What happened to Saul is one example of many of the world being turned upside down. For us, every day, may we celebrate how God is changing the lives of sinners who become saints. Until Jesus comes back, God is not done drawing his people to himself. May we join God in his mission by praying for those who do not know Christ. Let's be obedient to share the gospel. And as we see, as we see with Ananias, let's be eager to minister to those who have recently professed faith in Christ. And let's always remember, God is at work. Let's pray.